Hello, and you are listening to Eco Justice Radio on KPFK Los Angeles and KPFT Houston, a project of SoCal 350 Climate Action. Our show presents environmental and climate stories from a social justice frame, featuring voices not necessarily heard on mainstream media. Welcome, I am Jessica Aldridge. On today's show, Renegade Economics for a More Just World, Carrie Kim will be interviewing Della Z. Duncan, Renegade Economist. Della Z. Duncan hosts the Upstream podcast, Uplifting Stories of Regenerative Economics. She supports individuals working to align their values with their work as a right livelihood coach. She also works with organizations as a cooperative economic consultant and facilitates courses and retreats around the world. This is Carrie Kim. Listeners, thank you for joining us today to deeply ponder new ways forward for humanity, socially and economically, with renegade economist and consultant Della Duncan, founder of the Upstream Podcast. We thank the Tongva ancestors for their legacy and stewardship of this region. Our show comes to you from the ancestral lands of the Tongva, and we encourage listeners to engage in actions led by local First Nations wherever you now live to support and continue their stewardship. Since the pandemic began and long before then, many would concur that capitalism in its current form is failing here and globally. Rooted in inequity, capitalism exacerbates inequality, disempowerment and poverty by benefiting only the few. Ours is an opportune and urgent time to invoke systemic inspired change. Alternative economic models prioritizing well-being are gaining momentum. Countries like Bhutan, New Zealand, and Wales have dispensed with GDP in favor of indicators such as gross national happiness and well-being to measure progress and success. Globally, indigenous nations have lived and governed to ensure their communities and environment would be cared for and considered for the longevity and benefit of multiple generations forward and back. We invite all to ponder, what is the purpose of economy? What is capital? What is value? How is wealth created and sustained? Are we engaged in meaningful work that promotes planetary health? Can economics be woven into the social and spiritual fabric of our lives versus being treated as something outside of ourselves? How might we use our gifts, contribute to society, meet our basic human needs, and thrive individually and collectively? We welcome Della Duncan to share insights from the growing movement to revolutionize our perceptions, understanding, and practice of regenerative economics in our lives. Welcome, Della. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us on the show and for your deep dedication to ushering in new paradigms, new sustainable paradigms. There's so much to discuss. So let's start at the beginning. I would like you to begin with defining capitalism. Yeah, I'm happy to. So when I think of capitalism, I like to pick it apart into many pieces. So one of them is the classic uh, separation of those who are the 
owners of capital, either landlords or owners of property, as well as owners of businesses and the workers. So that separation, that's a very classic understanding of capitalism. So supremacy of those who own capital. Mm-hmm. And then there's other supremacies baked into capitalism. So there is the view that nature is for our use and exploitation. So supremacy of humans over nature. Mm-hmm. And then there's other supremacies, patriarchal supremacy, white supremacy, that are also a part of capitalism and its history. There is the growth imperative that success is viewed as growth, growth for an individual in terms of one's income, growth for a business in terms of profit, and growth for a country in terms of GDP, gross domestic product, the total exchange of goods and services. So success, progress, development are the growth of those indicators. And related to that is the not having other values in mind, such as other things that may be important, things that may bring us more human wealth and ecological health and well-being, other things that are very important to us. So there's that piece as well. And then I'll add one more, uh, one way I think of capitalism is that it's often really viewed as uh, the only system. Uh, There is no alternative to capitalism or neoliberal capitalism as the famous phrase from Margaret Thatcher. Mm -hmm. So really this supremacy of capitalism as an economic system, this ever pervasiveness and also its lack of history just knowing knowing that we actually have had other economic systems and there are many other economic systems that exist even right now. And so capitalism really denies that history, mm-hmm. uh, doesn't want us to look at the histories of colonization, slavery, uh, land theft that have become a key part of capitalism's rise and its monopoly today and also its supremacy over other economic forms. That's another uh, area of capitalism. So those are a few ways that I would describe what is capitalism. Now, if you, we would say that capitalism is dependent upon capital, how would you encourage we define capital now? Does it matter? Because maybe we don't want to embrace capitalism at all, but still, how, how should we be defining capital in your view? Yeah. So again, if we look at the word capitalism, so it's the supremacy or the domination of capital. Capital is the means of production. That's the classic definition. So again, it's things like ownership over land, ownership over buildings, infrastructure, and also the means of production. So that is what is capital. And those who are the owners of are those who are the capitalists. So in when we were talking about, when I opened the show, talking about other countries who are using other indicators beyond GDP, like, for example, Wales, and their assessment of well-being, they're considering four dimensions, human capital, social capital, natural capital, financial and physical capital. And I wonder if you have any commentary on this model and these ways of seeing other forms of capital as vitally important. Yeah, thank you for expanding that. And that's a great example of that. So what the way that I see the Wales Wellbeing Act is, as you mentioned in the introduction, as an alternative to gross domestic products. So an alternative 
measurement or indicator of the health or success of the country of Wales. And so they have expanded not just growth of the economy in terms of capital that I described, but they've expanded these other areas that they are deeming as of importance as well. As you said, human capital is our connection, social capital as well, cultural capital, ecological. So they are, it's, it's a way that they are expanding that which is important uh, to us. And I'm reminded of a quote by Dr. Havin Toe, who is a uh, part of the former program director of the Gross National Happiness Center of Bhutan. And he said, we are attentive to what we measure. We are attentive to what we measure. So again, Wales is really expanding. What is it that we want to measure? How do we want to define progress, health, success, development? And that's really what they're pointing towards when they make those distinctions and expand that definition. You know, could you describe, you had um, spent some time with a Korean Buddhist nun. And if you could talk about how you learned about Buddhist economies through that relationship or that encounter? Yeah, I came to mindfulness practice in a very Nick mindfulness kind of way. And what I mean by that (laughs) is I came to mindfulness as a way to ease my own feelings of anxiety or depression or overwhelm with everything happening today. And mindfulness was first taught to me or offered to me as a way of easing my feelings in this current uh, system, including our economic system, but also political, social, environmental. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, I was kicked off the cushion into engaged spirituality and engaged Buddhism through Joanna Macy, Mm -hmm. who is an eco-justice Buddhist philosopher and activist (laughs) Uh in Berkeley, California. And that led me to uh, Naropa University for a program where I met the person that you you spoke of. And I really was also on this journey of why is it that our economic system creates so much inequality and is causing so much suffering Mm -hmm. in terms of folks not having a, a way to access their passion and align their values with their work in terms of inequality, in terms of war in terms of degradation of ecosystems. So I've been on this journey exploring that and had this conversation with this Korean Buddhist nun around connecting the Buddhism that I was starting to be interested in, the engaged Buddhism, Mm -hmm. as well as economics. And so that's where I first learned of Buddhist economics. And then that led me to Schumacher College, which is named after E.F. Schumacher, who wrote a book called Small is Beautiful, Economics as if People Matter, with a chapter on Buddhist economics. Mm. So that conversation was very important for me. Can you talk about your time at Schumacher and what you actually gained during that time? I mean, you speak with all kinds of economists all the time, and you have your upstream podcast. So if you could speak about how Schumacher actually impacted your perception of the world and economics now. Yes. So Schumacher College is in a tiny town in Southwest England, and it was founded by a former Jain monk named Satish Kumar, who, as one of the many things that he's done, traveled around the world as an earth pilgrim for peace Mm -hmm. without any money. 
And mm. he is just a very special, beautiful being. And he really wanted to create a university that was more like an eco monastery. And Schumacher mm. College is also, again, located in this town of Totnes, which is important because that is the first transition town. And if folks aren't familiar, this is a movement around the world of communities that are working to transition their economies and ways of being off of oil and in more regenerative and equitable ways. So there's many facets to the transition town movement. It looks very different in different communities, but it's quite powerful. And the original economics degree that I pursued at Schumacher College was called Economics for Transition. So mm-hmm. it was directly connected with this transition town movement. And mm-hmm. yet it also, as I mentioned with Satish Kumar, it had these elements of eco-spirituality and really centered uh, this question around what are the worldviews that are underpinning traditional or I should say mainstream economic thinking and practice? And what are the ways that we might rethink them or challenge them? Also ways they have been thought of differently. So bringing in indigenous wisdom traditions or spiritual traditions that think differently on these topics. And how might those alternative worldviews create different economic realities in terms of practice and theory? Well, wouldn't you say that that is one of the fundamental problems is that we have exported this system of capitalism that is fundamentally divorced from anything spiritual or anything actually overtly discussed as nourishing to the soul or the spirit or your heart or whatever you want to call that. Absolutely. Yes. I, I think about Adam Smith, the, one of the, you know, fathers quote unquote of mainstream economics. He was a moral philosopher And economics then was in the department of moral philosophy. So I like to think that at least there was more challenging and questioning and and bringing in more about ethics and values then. And so sometimes I say, you know, let's return economics to the realm of moral philosophy, because you're absolutely right. These questions of what's really important to us, what's the point, what's a right relationship of humans with the earth, what what does community health and vitality look and feel like, and how might that be supported by an economic system? So yeah, our current economic system, again, only values growth and the bottom line and profit margin and the income and the growth at all costs. And so there's so much that is uh, left to the wayside and even harmed by that singularity of focus. Yeah. And then we have this compartmentalization, which is just like medical care here in the West, where you have everything isolated rather than looking at it holistically. I mean, the fact that we even have to identify economics in a way with the word why instead of it's just our life, it's just part of our overall life, our life philosophy, uh, everything that we perceive. You know, I listened to your poem on economics and you literally covered just about everything. I was like, what is not economics at that point? What does not involve economics on some level, whether it's a matter of exchange, sacred reciprocity, um, what, however you want to describe it. So one story that I'm reminded of is Satish Kumar went to the London School of Economics. Mm-hmm. And he's, again, the founder of Schumacher College. And, and he said to them, to the audience, he said, how can you call your school a school of economics without a department of ecology? And mm-hmm. he was alluding to the etymology. So economics, 
Oikos Nomos, management of the home. Mm -hmm. And originally that was the management of the domestic home. So our finances in and out. Then it became the nation state home and the management of that economy landscape. And as many folks, including fellow renegade economist Kate Rayworth says that 21st century economics is management of the planetary home because we know how interconnected we are, especially our planetary systems. So Mm -hmm. planetary home management, well, whose job is that? And the importance then of ecology, ecology, knowledge of our home. Mm -hmm. So Satish was pointing out, how can you seek to manage our home when you do not deeply know our home? So absolutely, I hear what you're saying around how economics needs holistic thinking and needs to be in absolute collaboration and partnership with sociologists, anthropologists, historians, uh, as well as many others. And by that definition of taking care of our planetary home or being a planetary steward, every single person needs to be actually an economist. So I think when we use the terminology, when I, we identify ourselves as a this thing, that may, means someone else maybe is not that thing. But if they don't consider themselves as, as uh, economists, then will they be as invested in caring for the planet, caring for the home, the way we manage it, all those things are, are uh, each individual and our collective responsibility? Absolutely. To think that we would leave our planetary home management to a group of so-called economists who are largely, <laughs> you know, very narrowly trained and often, not, not exclusively, but often white men, white yeah. Western men. Uh, what does that do, right? And what if we democratized economic thinking more? Because economics is how we organize our lives. It's how we meet our needs. It's how we relate to each other, our work, our purpose, and to the more than human world. So absolutely, I love what you're saying around democratizing and really democratizing economics and seeing all of us as a part of planetary home management, including the fungi and the trees and the birds and the pollinators as well. So Mm -hmm. we are all a part of this. So what does that mean to the realm of economics? I think that's what something I think Kate Rayworth of Donut Economics had also said that as well, that we need to reclaim the word, right? Take it back from intelligentsia or elitism and bring it back to just ordinary people living their lives and how do we create a meaningful life and, and weaving economics into all of that. Yes. And this is why, so the, mm. the phrase renegade economist, I actually got as an inspiration from Kay Rayworth. She was called a renegade economist <laughs> because of her amazing work, really challenging economic thinking and offering alternative ways of viewing and rethinking economics. So I right on. So uh, we have about a, a one minute to where you're going to take a break, Della, but I wanted to ask you, just kind of move into talking about want. Historically, many communities worldwide were perfectly content until Westerners sort of imposed upon them greed, learning to want more than they already had, sort of imposing upon them that they that what they had wasn't enough. And we know that capitalism feeds upon discontentment. It requires discontentment. And Kumar, who you've been quoting a lot, had claimed that countries like Burma, the continents of India and Africa, they did not need Western forms of development. And he affirmed that good economics is relational 
and implied at that same time that it's not transactional. So we're not we're not creating something new, but really more going back to original ways that we live traditionally and how we were with the land. So I want you to hold that. We'll come back to this after the break and have you go deeper into this response. Hey, listeners, quick break here. We hope that you're enjoying Eco Justice Radio. We air every Friday at 3 p.m. on KPFK Los Angeles and every Monday at 9 a.m. on KPFT Houston. Stay connected with us by subscribing to Eco Justice Radio on all major podcast apps and visit our website, ecojusticeradio.org, to check out previous shows and guests and get connected with us on social media. For an extended version of this interview, as well as other benefits, become a subscriber on our Patreon account. Today, you are listening to Renegade Economics for a More Just World with host Carrie Kim and guest Della Z. Duncan, Renegade economist and host of the Upstream podcast. Della, if you could comment on what I had said about that relational and transactional economics, the difference between those two. And and going back to how communities existed indigenously all over the world, and they were content with very little, with so much less. Yeah, I want to uplift what you said around to be content and to practice or express gratitude can actually be a quite anti-capitalist thing to do, to really <laughs> be grateful for what we do have and practice contentedness. And yeah, many of the traditions and places that I'm inspired by really consider con- contentment sufficiency in Bhutan, the gross national happiness index, they have sufficiency levels for each of their indicators. Mm-hmm. So what is enough? You know, what is enough for all of us? And particularly in this time of climate chaos and ecological devastation, more than ever, those of us in the global north, you know, ought to think about what is what is enough for sure. And then I also, you you mentioned Burma. I want to share a story. E.F. Schumacher, he, his, he was a mainstream economist and he traveled to Burma and he had a, a moment of awakening due to exactly what you're saying. He was there to help people get more and more in the classic terms of development. Mm-hmm. And yet he had an experience where he found that folks had a different perception of happiness where they were actually trying to achieve happiness with less and less. Mm -hmm. So there was a renunciation aspect to it, and it really shifted something for him. And that's why part of the reason why he wrote that book and the chapter on Buddhist economics. So, you know, I do, I am not naive to say that happiness and income are not connected at some level. They are. In -hmm. fact, if folks can imagine, there's this classic graph in the literature and the research that says that more money does equal more happiness until a certain point. Mm-hmm. So there are many folks, including in, in the United States, who do not have access to clean drinking water or feel very precariousness or paying their health care bills, mm-hmm. uh, as well as you know debt. So there is a point, but then this point levels off. So the graph kind of plateaus. So more money at a certain point, does not actually equal more happiness. So yeah, what would it look like to rise folks to the point where they do have enoughness and then recognize and express gratitude and appreciation for that enoughness when we have reached that? And then what do we do with the excess? What do we do with the greed? What do we do with the ostentatiousness? And one of the things I think about with that is 
what if in the future or you know even today excessive wealth was as offensive as racism as mm-hmm. we were able to say hey that is not okay especially while there are so many who who do not have enough mm-hmm. so what if we were to shift our perception around that well i think there's uh, the pandemic has has brought for many people not all because some people became more compulsive and maybe overindulged in different ways because they were going through the pandemic but for many people i think their wants actually became less because we went through so much went through a lot of the supply chain issues and we were you know in lockdowns and so i think a lot of people actually already experienced less wanting and it's not coming back for many people i'm happy to hear that you have perceived that trend <laughs> <laughs> no, i i don't say it exclusively but i know that there's definitely people for whom that was another level of shifting and and i could say it's probably for people who were already on that track that just became more aligned even more with their their path of um, you know less is more but it it feels important that we teach this value of enoughness to children and and it has to be modeled for children because it's not only just that we consider what is enough but it is actually saying there is enough yes i'm reminded of a an interview that I did with Rob Hopkins, one of the founders of the Transition Town Movement, and he described it this way. He said, I want my child to grow to a certain height, and then I want my child to stop growing and then grow <laughs> in other ways, right? In their interest in their hobbies or their musical ability or their network or friends. Mm. And so, yes, to work with folks to reach sufficiency to have their needs met, to not feel a sense of precariousness or lack or scarcity, because scarcity and lack are not just a figment of our imagination. It's actually built into the system. The the system is a game of musical chairs, as Charles Eisenstein would say. And so how do we get folks to reach that enoughness, that social foundation, as Kate Rayworth would say, Mm -hmm. but then to recognize that and to then want to grow or develop in other ways that are non-financial or non want based well one of the things i think is important to consider is time so in capitalist society right we are taught money is time but in reality that what we need to be is goods poor but time rich because most of the most of the time the great poverty for people is they don't have enough time not enough time for creativity not enough time for whatever is their spiritual practice not enough time for their passions and not enough time for their family, their loved ones. This is a big issue that we have. I I would agree with that, and I I love that you're bringing in these these uh, frames around rethinking wealth. Right, time rich is one of them, but I'm also thinking of Bhutan and how a few of their indicators of wealth are: how many friends could you call on if you were sick or unwell? How many friends could you call on if you? We're in financial trouble. And how many friends could you call on if you had a life celebration? You know, what if those were some of the other indicators of success and health? And I do think one of the things I have noticed in terms of the pandemic, particularly with my right livelihood coaching hat, is a lot of folks in this questioning around time are thinking deeply about their livelihoods, their careers. I mean, Mm -hmm. so much has been shifted or upended or dramatically changed in terms of jobs and work. And so I know so many folks who are really questioning, is it possible 
to have my work align with my values. This time is one one way this time is described is the time of the great <laughs> resignation. Yes, this time great is the great resignation. Uh-huh, and another way I've heard this time is called the time of a the she, she session, a she session, meaning recognizing how many female identified folks have dropped out of the quote unquote labor force uh-huh. to do quote unquote unproductive labor, (laughs) parenting or homeschooling or caretaking. Um, And of course, I say that tongue in cheek because I, of course, value the work that parenting and care work is coming Mm -hmm. from a feminist economics lens. But just to say this question of work and our contribution and our jobs and our livelihoods is another area that's really been questioned and explored right now. And it's hard to know exactly in the great resignation how much of that was voluntary, how much of that was necessity, like parents having to stay home to homeschool their kids, not even because they necessarily even wanted to do that, but had no felt they had no other choice. So it's it's hard to actually know all those answers, but definitely I think there's a confounding on the meaning of work and the purpose of our work for many people. They're in that inquiry. So I want to shift a little bit back to indigenous communities Because in many indigenous communities worldwide, land was held in common. Land was, of course, understood not to even be capable of being owned. It was often not possible to personally accumulate wealth or goods. This was all shared. For example, in Fiji, it was observed that the native people couldn't be motivated to work harder for money. They could care less, but they would work harder to help their families or to be of service. They were confounded by this. They couldn't understand it, you know, from a Western paradigm. So can you speak about shifting the primary motivations for work? And if people, of course, have meaningful, fulfilling work, they're much more likely to enjoy doing it and to keep doing it. Yes. To speak about land for a moment, just because I think you're making a really excellent point, the one of Marx's uh, key terms or phrases is primitive accumulation. And this goes back to what I was speaking about with capitalism not ever really being seen as historical. And so this idea that those who have capital are those, if we look historically, there was a process of primitive accumulation, usually land theft, as I mentioned, colonization, slavery, et cetera. And so there's this one interesting way of seeing money that I've heard, which is money is commodified grief. And that's a really interesting way to look at money. And yeah, so what does it mean to take people off the land in terms of taking away commons or privatizing land or other resources? And yeah, what does that do to people? And another story of this comes from England. Uh, The enclosures is really seen as part of the, the birth of capitalism and the transition from feudalism to capitalism. So folks were forced off of land and a feudal held land, but also commons and really forced to sell their labor in more factories and workspaces. And yeah, so just to, just to add to that excellent point that you made. And so, yeah, what, what is work? Why do we need to work? How much do we need to work? So I definitely want to express some, uh, some gratitude to the labor movements of the world, both current and past that have given many folks, but not all things like the work week and weekends, um, mm-hmm. the work of unions and and safety mechanisms and and all of that. So I really want to want to do that as well. But 
for me, it is an interesting uh, tension or challenge because on one hand, I do see how, uh, to use the words of Sarah Jaffe, work keeps us exploited, exhausted, and alone. I see mm-hmm. how cap- how work under capitalism does that. Mm-hmm. And then as a right livelihood coach, I also see how work can be our contribution to the world. And so when I view work in that frame, I expand what is work. So I use more of a feminist economics point of view. So I say that our, our parenting is work, our caretaking is work, our activism, our art making, our gardening is work. So if we see all of the ways that we contribute to the world mm-hmm. as our work, and some of that is monetizable, and some of that we receive a paycheck for, and some of it we don't, what does that do to shift our calling and our purpose so that we don't have to just say, this is my work and that's it? Because there's so much that is put upon our identities in terms of our work today. So just, I don't know if any of that is interesting. Well, maybe that is the natural segue to universal or unconditional basic income. Because I know that is being, you know, spoken about as sort of a transitional means or uh, a, a way to transition further away from capitalism as a dominant paradigm. So, if you could speak about your thoughts on universal basic income, some of the caveats and some of the the ways that you could see it could be uh, beneficial. Yeah, happy to. So, I just want to invite folks listening to just imagine in your body, in your mind. What would it feel like to receive a universal basic income every month, an unconditional amount every month? What would that do? What would that liberate in you in terms of your time, as you mentioned, in terms of what you put your energy and attention towards? So just to really get people into that feeling, what would that look and feel like? How would my life be different if I received a universal basic income? And What they find in the research studies, which there have been many of, when they do give folks a universal basic income, is that folks may take a slight break from waged labor because of burnout or just wanting to find themselves or really think about what it is they want to do. And then pretty much everyone returns or comes to some way of contributing to society. Again, whether that's art making or wage labor or something else. So I just want to say that very clearly because one of the classic myths about universal basic income is that everyone would be lazy and no one would do anything and no one would work. So it actually isn't true in terms of what happens when we look at the research. And so really what it does is it just breaks apart our ways of meeting our needs from our labor and our contribution. So it really liberates our work and our capacity to contribute. So we can be much more creative and and, and do maybe different things, or maybe folks listening and say, I would do the exact same thing. And that's cool too. But I want to share that. Could you speak about, I, I didn't know this until doing some research for our interview today, that Alaska had some form of um, UBI, universal basic income in place. Now, if you could speak about that and also if there's any models around the world that you want to share with listeners that you think are particularly successful around UBI? I don't actually know what around the world is actually happening with it. Yes. So in Alaska, it was called MINCOME. So it wasn't a classic universal basic income. It was more that if somebody's income dipped below a certain level, the government would prop it up. 
so that no one would fall below a certain mm-hmm. floor. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit different, but as you can imagine, very helpful. Mm-hmm. And what they did find related to what I shared earlier is that when families received this income, the only people who stopped working, quote unquote, were kids in high school because they were working because their families needed their income. So they were the only group that actually went back to school because their families no longer had the precariousness that required them to drop out of school and work in the first place. So that is one of the studies that I'm referring to when I talk about what it, what happens when people receive this. There are other examples around the world, small and large, and they're all very interesting because there are examples of more right-wing neoliberal versions of universal basic income. Milton Friedman actually was very pro-universal basic income. That might surprise folks. Uh The reason why he was is because he wanted everything to be on the free market. Mm -hmm. So he he actually didn't even want, you know, you wouldn't have a, a fire station in your community. It would be private right? (laughs) Uh, Everything would be privatized. And so everything would be on the open market. So that was actually Mm. that version. So it would be like the taking away of all public services and privatizing them. A more uh, progressive universal basic income. And even a way that people are reframing this is actually, we don't need a universal basic income. We need access to universal services. So what if we all had the right to education, healthcare, commons, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. So that's one way to think about it. But yeah, a progressive basic income would have that capacity as well as the separation of our wage and work. Mm-hmm. Well, and then it brings up the conversation because we know for a lot of people, just if you hear the word socialism for some people, because that's immediately what they think of when you talk about social services like this or this kind of access, and it gives people, you know, the hives for some people. They're they're panicked. They don't realize that we have a lot of socialistic systems in place already. You know whether it's social security, and they draw upon it. So it's it's very funny. But if you could speak about that a little bit, people's yes. aversion to just you know this kind of these isms. Yeah, happy to. So, yes, you're you're right that public roads, you know, all of the things from the New Deal were were a result of similar philosophies as well as public libraries like these are all social services that that folks draw from and appreciate and socialism and communism when we look historically in in many cases have caused a lot of suffering and i don't want to deny that and mm-hmm. one way that i've heard this explained i want to bring the words of richard wolf economist richard wolf and he says that the examples that we think of when we think of particularly communism, uh, maybe China and USSR in particular, mm-hmm. would actually be, if we look at it in hindsight, it was actually examples of state capitalism and not communism mm-hmm. because it was the state who owned the capital, the means of production, the properties, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there was hegemony or supremacy of the state as the owners of capital. So he says that's state capitalism. That was really informative for me and, and my thinking and how to reconcile historical examples uh, with today. Mm-hmm. And so he would say instead that socialism and communism are more about the, the the democracy and the workers having control over their lives and the means of production and a say. So 
Maybe when we come back from break, I can share the story of Mondragon, the world's largest cooperative ecosystem. But there are beautiful examples where workers do have more of a say. There is more transparency and there is more democracy in the workplace than than what we maybe traditionally know. Excellent. Well, we will come back in just a moment to speak more about Mondragon and worker cooperatives in just a moment. Hey, listeners, quick break here. We hope that you're enjoying Eco Justice Radio. We air every Friday at 3 p.m. on KPFK Los Angeles and every Monday at 9 a.m. on KPFT Houston. You can stay connected with us by subscribing to Eco Justice Radio on all major podcast apps. And you can visit our website, ecojusticeradio.org, to check out previous shows and guests and get connected with us on social media. For an extended version of this interview, as well as other many benefits, we encourage you to become a member of our Patreon. Today, you are listening to Renegade Economics for a More Just World with host Carrie Kim and guest Della Z. Duncan, Renegade economist and host of the Upstream podcast. Della, could you share more with us about Mondragon and um, the, the cooperative that they have happening there in Spain? Yeah, so again, bringing in Richard Wolf, he he's he's very funny and fun to listen to. But he says, you know, we think we live in a democracy, and yet when we step into a mainstream business, we are in an inherently non-democratic space, right? And this goes <laughs> back to that definition I gave around capitalism, where there is this separation between those who own the means of production, the capitalists or the bosses or the owners, and the workers, right? And that creates all sorts of problems, including alienation from our work, potential exploitation, et cetera. And Mondragon is one example, although there are many, of a cooperative ecosystem. So workers actually have say in the work that they're doing. They have shared ownership. They share the profits. And it's much more equal. They decide the pay differential. You know, can you imagine how radical that is? So many workspaces, wow, people don't even know the pay differential mm-hmm. between themselves and it's their bosses. Transparent. It's all transparent and decided. So I just want to share that example. It's a great one. I also want to share uh, one, one thing that I learned while being in Mondragon and studying cooperatives is they can still have that element of capitalism that is growth addicted or growth imperative and profit motivated. They are still a for-profit business. Mm -hmm. So I want to share that. And so therefore I want to share one of my even more so favorite models is the worker self-directed nonprofit. So this would take the for-profit and growth imperative motive out of the equation. And it would Mm -hmm. instead center social or mission driven cause. And it would have the, transparency and democracy and horizontal governance of a worker cooperative. So I just want to share that as a as a way of rethinking this model. Well, you know, if, if you could also from there speak about the fact earlier in, on in the show, you were talking about forms of economic activity that already exist outside of capitalism, non-capitalist forms of economic activity. And one of the guests on your show, sorry, I can't remember his name exactly right now, but he was sharing about this. And it's such an inspiring reminder to realize that capitalism, uh, we are not bound and necessarily a slave to capitalism alone. It's not the singular system. I mean, we forget about the other models that are already here with us now. So there 
are two feminist economists who wrote under the same pen name, Gibson Graham. Mm-hmm. And this next thing I'm going to say, I, I learned from their, their wisdom, their writing. So they say that we actually perform diverse economies. And when we say that we are only in capitalism, we give capitalism actually more power than we need to. So mm-hmm. a, way, a way to think about this is you are participating in capitalism when you go into a for-profit business or when you shop on shop at Amazon. You are participating in an alternative economic system when you go to the library or when you give your neighbor a ride to the airport. That's the sharing economy. Or when you take care of your elderly parent or your child, that's the care, care economy, the caring mm-hmm. economy, or the feminist economy. There's the gift economy, right, which is gift giving. Mm-hmm. So there, and then of course the solidarity economy would be if you went into a worker cooperative and you or a a bike shop, you know, a share shop type of place. So there are many different economic systems. And so, and another invitation for listeners is. As you go about your day, when are you performing capitalism? And it can, I do want to say, it is not just the structure, but capitalism can also, has also infused our way of thinking. So many people talk about how they're embodying capitalism or performing capitalism, the work ethic, the greed aspect, or the obsession with uh, growth and profit. And Mm -hmm. so what are the ways that you perform other economies, the gift economy, the sharing economy, the cooperative economy, new economy, next economy, solidarity economy, Buddhist economy? What are the ways that you, yeah, what was that? Nonprofit. Nonprofit economy. So what are the ways that you participate in those economies? And what would it look like to water those economies, to strengthen them, to grow them? so that we can rise out of the global sea of capitalism into these many islands of alternatives. I I got the name. It was Eric Wright who had spoken about it, but also I had Gibson Graham as well, but he, the sociologist from University of Madison, and he was talking about same thing, what you're saying right now about vitalizing and expanding upon these alternative forms, these non-capitalistic forms of economic activity and doing them more and more. And then this starts disempowering actually capitalism in a certain way. It just naturally loses its dominance. Yes. When I feel into the dress transition or the great turning or the transition or shift to a more just and equitable and sustainable economic system, I hope and imagine that it doesn't have to be violent. It doesn't have to be a pushing away or antagonistic. It's that what if we turn towards the the wealth of time richness, as you said, community vitality, friendship. So yes, I love what you said, fall away. How can it fall away? And how do we turn towards these economic systems that we already know, time banking, land trusts. These are all examples of alternative economic systems that exist today that we can water and grow to, again, yeah, transition away from extractive and exploitive capitalism. I think it's just making um, everything more transparent, becoming more conscious of what we are participating in, and then choosing differently, just making conscious choices. It is. And yet I also want to, I just feel called to say that it is difficult as individuals to make these alternative choices because capitalism is is very much in some ways has supremacy and so just just to say that you know to 
when somebody has not a lot of money, I don't want to stigmatize or shame anyone who is choosing to shop at a mm-hmm. um, a place that is more uh, capitalist rather than the you know all natural organic cooperative because it may not be affordable to them yet. I'm not saying that we need to lower the costs or you know the supply chain of things that are made in California or ethical, sustainable, fair trade. Instead, we need to redistribute the wealth and also rise the income for those folks who can't afford it. So I just, does that make sense? Just that it's, yeah. it's, it's, there's the individual choices, but then there's also the movement changes that need to happen. And there again, is. universal basic income would be one example of a way to get there. Well, and we've kind of been taught to also be addicted to price shop and we don't understand maybe fully the, the costs that that inflicts upon other communities around the world as well, for one, you know, the exploitation involved in that, you know, lower price. I think that we, it just becomes something so insidious that we don't even realize how much it impacts our lives, you know, our choices on a regular basis. Even people who think they're, you know, super conscious and, you know, living this, this kind of a lifestyle. Yeah. We do documentaries in our podcast, and one of our upcoming documentaries is on what does the post-growth movement in the global north mean for the global south? So really thinking about, yeah, what if we did localize all of our economies or have only fair trade, organic, you know, what would that mean for other countries? And how do we be aware of, of what's happening in other countries and how do we be in solidarity with their efforts and their autonomies of their economies as well. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a very interesting kind of conundrum about where, you know, those of us who live here, what we experience and what other people, like, for example, I mean, the last times when I was in India, there were so many more people wanting cars and it was just because it was about status and the wealth that if you drove a car, that was better than if you were, you know, traveling in a different form. It just showed you had more, more status, economic status. But yet there was a big cost to that environmentally and so forth. But there was a reason why that was wanted. Absolutely. As that goes back to value, right? We've been talking yeah. about. Yeah, as you mentioned earlier, the like uh, ways that we've, sent or exported capital capitalism and the indicators of success into other places in the world. That's one great example of that. You know, I wanted to, this has been so uplifting, but I want to shift a little bit for one, this one question about worker displacement. And also, I don't know if you've seen the recent film Ascension, it's kind of a disturbing documentary about modern efficiency and production and sort of the fatal flaws for humanity. It's largely set in, in China But we know that worker displacement is inevitable. We are seeing it. You know, we keep seeing more and more of like self-checkout at more and more places, et cetera, things like this. But we know that AI will continue to replace certain kinds of human jobs. And at the same time, when we speak about right livelihood and people really pondering, what is the meaning of my life? What is the meaning of my work? What am I meant to do when I'm innately gifted to do and contribute And a lot of these jobs would not fall into that category. You know, a lot of people, if they could do something else for the same amount of money or more or another livelihood that was more fulfilling, they would likely not choose to be a trash collector or a retail store clerk or what. There's a million jobs that people would probably not choose. I mean, we've seen this during the pandemic, you know, many of the jobs that people left. So could you speak about 
what considerations do we have around sort of more manual labor jobs or jobs that are the least desirable for many people on the soul fulfilling level? Yeah. So returning to the wisdom of E.F. Schumacher in his book, Small is Beautiful, he speaks about something called appropriate technology. And he says, what if technology served human and planetary flourishing rather than we serving technology? Mm-hmm. So I bring that in to say that technology can be both something that we are a slave to and also something that can be completely useful and helpful for our time and our you know time richness but also our happiness and health. And so my two questions in in regards to worker displacement are who's making the decisions and who's benefiting from the automation. Now mm-hmm. if those who are doing the work make the decision to automate their work, I am for it. So if the the truck drivers of the world say, we we do not want to do any more truck driving, we are happy to automate this work, then I stand behind it as someone who wants to be in solidarity and support of those workers. But there may be folks who really enjoy truck driving. I mean, I know there I, are truck drivers yeah. who love truck driving. Yeah. But definitely my, yeah, my my father in love, he's he was a mailman for many years and he loved it. So I know that we can find passion and purpose in, in many different areas of work. So who's making the decision? And then the second point, very critical, is who is benefiting from the automation? So if it were that a group of people decided to automate it, then they ought to be the people to benefit from the automation. So if folks are losing their their jobs at McDonald's because of self-ordering machines, then those are the folks that ought to benefit from the automation and the profits generated from that piece. But so how that's they would how do you see that that would happen? Yeah. How, how would it be that they would benefit? Like how do you see that actually happening? Well, in one way that that would happen, there it would be a cooperative business or cooperatively run and so those who decide to automate would then share in the profits of that automation because they would all be co-owners rather than just a select few. But Mm -hmm. right now, the way that it's set up, the way that you described it, there are very few people who are benefiting from the automation at the Mm -hmm. tiny, uh, tiny top, and it is encouraging inequality and it's rising. Well, I do love this idea of the worker cooperatives and seeing more of this. And I'm sure we will see more of that because there is momentum people are you know there there is a shift happening no matter how long it takes there's definitely more and more people moving in this direction together and inspiring others and it's just going to continue exponentially that's my personal feeling but you know Della if you could please share a little about how listeners can stay in contact with you listeners definitely listen to Della's upstream podcast that she hosts with other other hosts and there's many, many very astute and dynamic economists on the show. There's great information on the podcast. And if you could share some of your links. Yeah, thank you. So the Upstream podcast is upstreampodcast.org. And they are there's some documentaries and then there are conversations. And then more generally, as a renegade economist, I offer right livelihood coaching, alternative economics consulting, and general teaching of alternative economic tools and principles. So delazyduncan.com is my personal link for that. So upstreampodcast.org and delazyduncan.com. But just want to end by just inviting folks to rethink economics. If anything felt inspiring or interesting, or maybe 
uncomfortable from this conversation, I encourage you to just look into it and see what stories of alternatives are out there. What, who are think, who is thinking about these topics out there and, and what are they prototyping and trying and how could you get involved? And also to encourage folks to return economics to the realm of moral philosophy, to just challenge, to question mainstream economic thinking. And then finally, to uplift water and encourage those alternative economic models and practices that you're already participating in to rise us out of the global sea of capitalism and help us in the just transition to a more sustainable and just world. Thank you. We hope to have you back on again because this is just going to continue. You know, really definitely would love to have you back on the show. Happy to. <laughs> thank you, Della. Thank you to our guest, Della Z. Duncan, renegade economist. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. This has been Renegade Economics for a More Just World. For an extended version of this interview, become a member of our Patreon. Please connect with us on social media at Eco Justice Radio, SoCal 350, and Adventures in Waste. If you like what you heard today and you want others to be informed, you know what to do. Subscribe to our podcast, share the episodes, and help us continue our efforts by joining our Patreon or making a donation to the show. been listening to Eco Justice Radio on KPFK Los Angeles and KPFT Houston, a project of SoCal 350. The show can be found at kpfk.org, kpft.org, all major podcast apps, and at ecojusticeradio.org. Created by Mark and J.P. Morse, executive producer Jack Ite, producer and co-host Jessica Aldridge, co-host Carrie Kim, and, and engineer and original music by Blake Quake Beats. And until next time, remember, the power is yours. Mm-hmm.